please turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The pressure's on. We have 20 minutes. Hold on to your pews. <laughs> Greg said, don't go past 12 in five minutes before 12. And you know I would never go over. Our message this morning is entitled, Mercy to a Thousand Generations. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought the money, or brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our minds to understand these scriptures that you would grant to us the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, that you would give us a willing spirit to do all that you have commanded, and that you would give us grace to do it, for you know we cannot do what you want without you empowering us. Amen. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What was the Holy Spirit doing here? This is a very shocking Bible account. These are shocking events. These nice people, these churchgoers, are coming in and they're giving an offering in church, and God killed them because they were sinning. This is very shocking, right? What was the Holy Spirit doing in these events? He was sanctifying for himself a humble people, a people who feared the Lord. Do I fear the Lord? Do we fear the Lord? This passage raises for us this and other important questions. Like, in the Bible, which comes first? Friendship with God or a knowledge of God's love? Or the fear of the Lord? Most of us, I think in this country at least, would say, well, we've got to know God loves us, and then we kind of grow in respect for Him. And a complete biblical picture uh, would, would take these hand in hand, but which comes first and which leads to the other, right? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what does it mean to know God? Do we, are we instantly translated to affection for Him because he, of the great love with which He loved us? What comes first biblically is that when we see Him as He is, we're in awe. We're amazed that anyone, anywhere, could, be so, could have such an overpoweringly great presence, could be so holy and good that even the goodness of the Lord is scary. And instantly, we're convicted of our own sin, like Peter in this passage. When he, when he met the Lord in the boat, he fell down on his knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus was inviting him to follow him and be his disciple, you know, like a close, trusted, like a son to him, and to learn to think and do all these things he was going to teach him over the next several years, and then to raise him up to be one of the apostles of the church. But in the invitation, that's a, that's a wonderful invitation. In the, the call of Peter is like the best thing that could have ever happened to anybody. And we might think, well, he should have been really happy about it. But his instant thought was that he perceived in Jesus Christ the Son of God. He perceived deity in the flesh, and he was afraid. And the fear of God came over him such that he was repentant, and he, he confessed, like Isaiah, woe is me. I've got, like, I say bad stuff. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, like, you know, help. <laughs> if you're going to come near to me, then you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to sanctify me because I'm lost. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The first thing we can know spiritually when we begin to know Him is His worthiness, His worth, His greatness, His holiness. And the first thing that happens is fear. And then, when we see that he would take in people such as us, that that's an astonishing act of mercy. And for that, we love him. Psalm 25, 14. 
the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So first we fear him, and then because he sanctifies us by the blood of his own son and begins to sanctify us daily and lifelong from our many sins and our sinfulness, we become as friends of the Lord even. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. These things, these things we just read about Ananias and Sapphira, and in contrast to them, Barnabas who sold the field, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end or the fulfillment of the ages has come. If God had waited until the final judgment to punish Ananias and Sapphira for their sin, we would not have had the example. What was judgment for them was mercy for us. Without this example, we might have continued to hide our own secret sins and thought we could get away with it. But Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I think those are very shocking words. You remember when he said that? Um, there was a, a construction accident. This uh, tower fell and some people passed away uh, in the accident. And, you know, people stood around and they gave their political commentary. Well, you know, this, you know those people were real bad sinners anyway, you know. <laughs> and and Jesus' uh, part of the discussion is like, yeah, you think they were worse sinners than everybody else? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He was rather shocking. When Jesus comes and walks among us, it's for mercy, but it's also shocking because it's him. And you can't tone down Jesus, and you can't tone down the Holy Spirit because there's one God, and he's manifest in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit poured out into all the earth. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God has had plenty of chances to judge me, to judge each one of us already. But instead, he withheld judgment from me. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Therefore, we stand fast in him. So do we read this about Ananias and Sapphira, and do we fear God? Or do we read this and we're shocked that God would do this to a nice couple bringing their offering? Something in our flesh cries out when we read passages like this. Why was God severe with them? Why didn't they get a warning? Why didn't they get another chance? Should God have done that? Do you have thoughts like that? Was God wrong to suddenly take their lives when other people, like us, get mercy again and again? Amen? The answer is no. My flesh may cry out in accusation against God, charging God with wrongdoing, but I think that a better understanding of what's going on here in this passage will help us to fear God instead of, in our hearts, accusing God of going overboard in judgment. When God opens our minds to understand the Scripture, 
we perceive that this happened as an example for us so that we might repent of our own sins and find mercy. It was judgment for one family and mercy to a thousand generations of those who would read this and find grace in Christ through confession and renouncing of our sins. But we still have some questions to answer. We first have to understand exactly what they did that made God respond quickly and severely. Let's see. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, Peter was no stranger to Satan filling his heart. Do you remember when Jesus, when Peter is rebuking Jesus because Jesus is out of line and that can't be right, Jesus. And, he's, and he draws Jesus aside and he's like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. I'm going to set you straight. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says to him, get behind me, Satan. It's like the most stunning rebuke in the scriptures. I don't want to be called Satan by God. You see, Satan had entered Peter's heart to resist Jesus and to rebuke him. And Peter found mercy. And so Peter writes in one of his epistles that your enemy, the devil, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Resist him. And so it's possible to resist him. Satan was, Peter was no stranger to taking his sin a little too far such that Jesus would rebuke him by saying, get behind me, Satan. And Peter correctly identifies Ananias' sin here. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Clearly, they lied and were trying to trick everyone into thinking that they were generous people, right? Well, what was really in their heart was greed. They sold land, split the cash, and put part of it in their pockets, which is fine. I think they put the maximum amount possible back in their bank account and gave as little as possible in the offering. But they didn't say, we're bringing an offering. They could have brought any amount they wanted, and it would have been good and pleasing to the Lord. But in fact, they spent that offering on themselves. It wasn't an offering to God at all. They spent it trying to build a better public image. They gave the money with the motive of wanting people to think they were generous, faith-filled, loving people. In fact, they were greedy, faithless, selfish people. The offering was not made to God at all. It was spent on themselves. If nobody had seen them give the money, they would not have given it. They only offered it because people were watching. I don't think they even believed in God. In a theoretical sense, yeah, sure, they believed in God. Just like many of us used to believe in God, but we certainly didn't have the fear of God in us at one time. We had only heard of God from others. We believed in God, but we didn't have that first and essential quality of true Christians, the fear of the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira broke God's covenant because they did not fear the Lord. And God judged them without any delay so that we might fear and that he might show mercy on us.
God had the right to judge Ananias and Sapphira in this life or wait until the final judgment. Did he not? Just as they had the right to do whatever they wanted with their money. They could offer it or not or offer half of it. I'm not going to question and complain because God wasn't merciful to Ananias and Sapphira. Look at the difference between Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas. Here we have Joseph, who's called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He must have been a pretty nice guy to be around to gain a nickname like that. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet because what was in his heart was generosity to his fellow man, to those in need. He saw the need, and he gave, and it was pleasing to the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira saw the need. They didn't care. They sold something, as one might do. They, uh, they cashed in part of it, and they brought the rest and said, this is the full price of the field that we have sold so that we might give it all as a gift to the Lord. And they were struck down dead. This is just like, in fact, the word where Peter says, you have kept back for yourself part of the proceeds. This was written in Greek originally. And at that time, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures had been translated into Greek also. So you could read the, you could read the whole Bible in Greek as, as it was being written. In the, the word for kept back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, the word for kept back for yourself is the same Greek wording for when Achan kept back for himself some of the devoted things. Do you remember? The people were going into the land. For over 400 years, God had been patient with the nations of the land of Canaan, and God said, all right, the cup of their sin is full. Now I'm going to pour out on them judgment. And in an amazing thing, God had the people of Israel come in and, and make war with them as his agent of judgment on them, right? Kind of a scary thing to be a part of God's judgment. And so he sent the people in and he said, you know, make war with all of them and destroy them. Don't, you know, it's time to judge is, is due or overdue, right? And so they set an ambush or they, they go in to attack this one particular town in the land of Canaan. And one of the guys, one of the soldiers, sees among the spoil... Um, this bar of gold and, and silver and this beautiful garment from, uh, from Babylon, from the land of the Chaldeans, right? And, and he keeps these for himself and he hides them in his tent and kind of buries them under things. And I think his family knew about it. And when the people go uh, in, in the battle, uh, 36 Israelites are killed and Israel, great fear comes upon the army, and the people of this little town come out and drive back all the Israelites, and it's like the courage that the Lord gives is withdrawn from them. And Joshua falls on his face before the Lord. Joshua chapter 7. Uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse... Uh, Verse 6, uh, verse 5, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amor- hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And all of a sudden, God speaks. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. It's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They have kept back for themselves some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and, and so on. And, and because they have done, because one of the men of Israel has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So they went man by man, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, and the Lord, by a word of prophecy, said, all right, it's this tribe, it's this clan, it's this family, it's this man. And Joshua stands before Achan, and he says, give glory to God, my son. What have you done? And he confesses that among the spoil In the battle, I saw these things. I coveted them, and I kept them back for myself. You see, the presence of God was with them mightily, mightily to defeat their enemies and to bring them into a land when they had been in slavery for 400 years, their backs being beaten by cruel taskmasters, right? And God was bringing them into this place as he had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And now... Joshua chapter 7 is introduced with, but the people of Israel broke faith with God and transgressed his covenant. Actually, just one guy coveted some stuff and and stole it. But in God's interpretation of what just happened in Achan's sin and in the battle and the people losing courage and all this, the people are treated as a family. Sometimes God treats us not just as individuals, or not sometimes, God treats us not just as individuals, but as the family of God. And when one of us or some of us, some of us harbor our secret sins, the Lord does not bless us, and he may draw near to us, not for mercy, but with judgment. Like in Israel, 36 people died. Achan didn't die. 36 other people, other fellow Fellow soldiers died, right? And then Achan, they found, he confessed his sin, and, and he was, well, he acknowledged it when, they, fi- when the, they finally got down to him out of all the people of Israel. You know, he's like, well, yeah, I did it. You know, I wouldn't say he exactly confessed it. He just acknowledged it, you know. And, and, and he, was, he was put to death. He and everything he had, they stoned him. And here in the New Testament, another example is given to us. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. But in this passage, other people don't die for Ananias and Sapphira's sin. 
in this passage, they die for their own sin. And God had the right to judge them at the final judgment or then. And he had mercy on the whole congregation by separating them out and giving by the Holy Spirit a word of prophecy to Peter so that Peter might discern that they weren't just like anybody else, like another Barnabas bringing an offering. He had a word of knowledge, and he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This is Pentecost Sunday, the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is holy. We are praying, we have been praying that he would be poured out on us. But the problem with God drawing near to us is that he comes in all the fullness of who he is. He comes in infinite mercy and infinite justice. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of wrath. He is himself. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God is holy, and you don't mess around with God. The covenant God has made with us is a dreadfully serious thing. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We cannot do whatever we want in church, as churchgoers, and get away with it, supposing that God won't see it and act. We cannot transgress his covenant and have my self-will, my selfish ambition, and my covetousness filling my heart or filling our hearts and expect reward from the Lord, either now when God draws near to us or on that day when we stand before him to be judged according to our deeds. God has made covenant with us by the blood of his Son. This is no like ancient covenant where some nation conquers another nation, and they're like, all right, now I'm, you're like my kid nations, and I'm like your dad nation, and, you know, here are my rules, and if you follow my rules, we won't send our army in and wipe you out. We'll let you have your own governor, and, you know, these are the stipulations of the covenant, and, and so on. This is the covenant that God has made with his people. It's like no other covenant. God has made covenant by the, with us by the blood of his Son, with the blood of the eternally begotten Son of God, he ransomed us. He purchased for himself a people for his own possession. All of us would have transgressed the covenant, perhaps like Ananias and Sapphira, if he didn't remove from us our sins and put a new heart in us to please him. All of us would persistently rebel and break faith with him. Thus, it is the Son of God who receives all the glory, and it is him we fear, and it is him to whom we run for mercy every day. As it is written, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's like when Moses asks God to show him his glory. Right after the people of Israel had been brought out to Egypt, they completely and overwhelmingly, every one of them, with the exception of Moses who was up on the mountain, immediately engaged in like wild idol worship, some kind of 
inappropriate party kind of thing, right? Forsaking God and taking off their earrings and sculpting this idol of gold immediately after God had delivered them, after God had saved them. And so in mercy, God called Moses back up the mountain. Exodus 34. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or for thousands of generations. That's us, church. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen. Amen. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I think the best response to this difficult text about Ananias and Sapphira, the shocking text, where God is dwelling in all of his presence in the midst of his people, I think a good application for us to take home would be to wake up in the morning, every morning this month, and read Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And to close our days, every day this month, with Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my iniquity and my sin. Psalm 139 in the mornings and Psalm 51 in the evenings. Please come to the table of Christ. Christ, the judge of all the earth, and Christ, the merciful one, who will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick until he has led us into victory. Amen. Amen. Please come.